Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. So last week we began our series on the invisible war, and we were looking at the reality that, that uh, you know, asking the question, why does life have to be hard? And there are many answers to that question that are true, uh, one of them being that just the fact that we live in a broken world because of sin, that is a true statement there. Another reason why life is hard is because we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. We are in the midst of dealing with spiritual struggles. We title it the invisible war. We talked about in the last week that there are battles within, there are battles around us, there are battles aimed at you specifically. We identified the enemies. We talked about that threefold enemy of our flesh, our sinful nature, the world around us, and we talked about even Satan and his troops being marshaled to be able to uh, go to battle, to go to war with us. Today, where we're headed is we're going to spend just some time through this uh, series where we look specifically at each arena, at each battle, and we look at those battles, how, how things are waged against us, and what are the tools that we have, what are the, the weapons given to us to fight those battles, to contend in those arenas. Today, we're looking at the battle within. The reality is we wage war within ourselves. Many times we have multiple fronts going on at the same time within us. Most of us, if we're being tell, if we're telling the truth, most of us experience many days in which this conflict is just, it's like a bubbling cauldron in us, right? Many of us are just seething sometimes with anxiety, with anger, with frustration because of the conflicts that we experience. And oftentimes, we're very quick to blame other people, aren't we? We point the finger and say that what I'm feeling and the anxiety and the frustration and the anger and all those things, it's your fault and it's your fault and it's your fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. And the truth be told, as a truth teller here, the reality is more than likely you are your own worst problem. It's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not your kids, it's not your parents, but it's you, friend. Yes, it's you. Often, you are your own biggest enemy. Much of the time, Satan does not have to worry one iota about setting some intricate trap for you to fall into and put you into a grievous sin, because the reality is, is you are messing up your life all by yourself. You can't blame it on Satan, you know, it's just, it's you, it's you. And before you get too angry with me saying, you know, you're very quick, Tony, to point fingers at me. Well, understand I am keenly aware that as I'm pointing a finger at you, three are pointing back at me. And the reality is I'm in the same boat. We're all in the boat together that, that we have battles waging uh, within us, raging within us. And, and it's oftentimes our own issues and, and caused by our own problems. I remember a time, I can't say recently, it was probably about 20 years ago. Uh, we're in the middle of mission trip season now. You know, our youth are planning 
I'm telling the truth, aren't I, Melissa? Our youth are in the middle of planning a really great uh, mission trip with several adults going with them. I believe around 20-ish people, am I correct in that, are going to Colorado this summer to represent Northbridge Church for a week. Uh, You know, I remember those days of planning a youth mission trip every year. And one year, probably about 20 years ago, we decided we were going to partner with our own Windy Sap. You guys, many of you know Wendy Sapp. He uh, pastors a church in inner city St. Louis. He also has inner city ministries in St. Louis. And we uh, were good friends with Wendy even back then. And uh, we decided we were going to, we were going to plant and begin the process of having a, starting a summer camp ministry for him. Uh, Wendy had some property in Macomb, Illinois that was family land that really they weren't doing anything on. And he had this vision of, he started taking just kids, a couple of kids at a time, three or four kids just to spend a night uh, on this, this ground. Many of these kids that he worked with in inner city St. Louis, never been further than two or three blocks away from their home. Many of these kids never saw a live cow, you know, these kids did not see the kind of bugs that are in, in the country. You know, they experienced all these things. Many of these kids never fished before. And so Wendy would take them, go fishing, campfires, do the whole nine yards, the way many of us have been raised. They, they got to experience that. Well, we decided, and we, uh, through prayer and through connection with him, we were like, what if we grow this into an actual bona fide summer camp and do multiple days with more than just two or three kids? So we began the process of training approximately uh, 25 teenagers and adults uh, for several weeks, several months. We were training, we were preparing for this, and we knew we were going into remote Macomb. We took tents, sleeping bags, we packed in our own water and all our food. We cooked on grills and camp stoves. We even had to have a porta potty come out. Uh, we rented a porta potty. Uh, this place, no running water. If you were going to bathe or shower during those three days, you were going to do it in the pond. And, and so that was our experience. Now, we understood that this was going to be a battle, and we understood that like any battle, it would be, there would be a beachhead that we had to establish, and that's what we understood that we were doing then. We thought there would be some discomfort. We thought there would be some pain. We did not realize until we were walking through it that it was much like the scene from the opening, uh, the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. When we got there on that ground, we started looking around at each other and said, we might not all make it back, folks. And it was, it was very painful. <laughs> I'm just, I'm telling, right now, I feel my blood pressure going up even as I'm thinking about it. It was very painful. We ran immediately from day one. We ran into several problems. Problem number one, Wendy uh, told us when we, the, the day before we started our camp that they experienced a tragedy in their church and one of their dear, dear saints died, passed away just the day before that. And Wendy would have to stay. He was going to drop the kids off and then he would have to, have to come back to St. Louis and tend to this family and, to, and, and attend to them in their needs as he was preaching the funeral for this beloved saint. And so he would not be there. So think about this. There's these kids, these inner city kids that were going to be with us. Uh, many of them uh, were distrustful. They did not, many of them did not know any other white people other than Pastor Sapp. And Pastor Sapp had been and done life with him for a long time. So there was a deep trust with them. But we didn't have that kind of trust. We didn't have that kind of respect. But the plan was we were going to have between, we were going to have approximately 12 to 15 kids between the ages of of four and eight. So we were like, you know what? There's 25 of us. Worst case scenario, 
you know, one-on-one and the troubled kids, two-on-one. We can make this happen. We can make this work. We can do this. Well, then problem number two arrived. While we were prepared for this 15 kids between the ages of four and eight, Wendy had a school bus in which he was picking the kids up. So we weren't standing there uh, inspecting or looking at numbers. And when we stopped at the roadside rest stop to have lunch before camp started, we look around and my right-hand person looks at me and says, Tony, there are more kids here than 15. And I said, yeah, I think you're right, Debbie. Let's count and let's figure out how many exactly we're dealing with. Well, you know, I was prepared to, at 20, oh, we can handle that. 25, well, okay, we, we can deal with that. Well, when we got to 45, we knew we were in trouble. And then when we started looking and saying, you know, some of these kids are going to be asking to borrow my razor because they're not eight years old, they're 18 years old. We knew we were in trouble. And so we had 45 kids between the ages of four and 18. Wendy was leaving as soon as they got off the bus. And then the problem, the third problem came in which when we got there, we discovered that Wendy's brother, his church was there as well, their youth ministry, their youth ministry and they asked to be a part. They asked to help us. And so in, my, in those days, I was like, fine, yes, more lives, more bodies, absolutely, come on board. Thinking that these youth would be just as well-trained, just had the same kind of sense of calling that our kids had. Let me tell you, I discovered that day at camp that there is a load of difference between youth groups. And this youth group was not trained, was not prepared, and in many ways acted worse than the kids that we were ministering to. And that having this group in created all sorts of problems, created all sorts of conflict. I would start off camp, friends, uh, in my tent, serene. Man, you'd think I was Mahatma Gandhi. You know, I was just at one with the universe, ready to come out and minister to many of these kids, understanding that every one of these kids had a terrible experience in childhood, that knew that every one of these kids did not, were not raised the way I was, were not raised the way my kids were raised in our youth ministry. And I was just prepared to share the love of God with kids who many of them never experienced the love of God. Many of them had to see things at a young age that I had never even seen in my 30s and 40s. And I would walk out of my tent ready to share the love of God, ready to give of my life and, and, uh, and just, just share God's kindness to these children. And let me tell you, before breakfast, I would become a Tasmanian devil. I mean, I'd just start raging and I'd just, I mean, just be going out of my mind so angry with everything I'm dealing with and everything that's going on. Uh, and, and things were coming out of my mouth where I'd be, instead of sharing the love of God, I'm yelling at these children and saying, you know, put that basketball down right now, DeAndre, or I'm going to hit you. You know, I'm like saying things I would never say, things that as they were coming out of my mouth, I'm like, what am I doing? I mean, I was just imploding here. And, and I just, just, you know, oh, man, I knew I was in so much trouble. I saw it happening. I knew it was terrible. I knew I was terrible. And I was not helping the situation in any way, but all I could do, it seemed like, was just go down this road, you know? And I didn't go down this road once and then pull it together and say, okay, now the next couple of days, let's get to this right. 
Oh, no. Every day was like that. Once, twice, all three days. It was just a matter of me just who was I going to scream at first? Who was I going to be angry at? And it was just horrible. And we were in a terrible situation, and I made that situation even more terrible. What was happening? Why was it happening? You know, why was I imploding? Why was I having this meltdown? Well, let me tell you, we're going to go to a copy of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that helps explain what I was dealing with at this time. And when you, you might find yourself in that same kind of scenario at different times where your buttons are getting pushed and you're in this conflict and you're just melting down and you're doing things that you can't believe you're doing, you're saying things you can't believe you're saying, and you're wondering why, why am I acting like this? Paul has an answer, and I invite you to go to Romans chapter 7, and let's read this passage together as Paul is explaining what he, what's going on in his life when he's having these inner struggles. Starting in verse 15, he says, he writes, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. If I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. Verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. That's a question that we all are asking ourselves. We see here in this passage of Scripture, Paul's mind uh, in the middle of the battle. Paul's mind in the middle of the battle. Oh, for the record, I do feel this because I'm sure there's at least one person in here going, I can't believe he just threatened to hit a kid. Keep in mind, that kid was 18 years old, and he was six inches taller than me. So he was more of a man than I am. Moving on from that, okay? <laughs> Moving on from that. Need to clarify that one, okay? Uh, Paul here is describing the middle of the battle. And what I want to do is just read this passage, part of this passage again, and I need your help with it because Paul talks a lot about himself here, more so than he normally would. He, he uncharacteristically does this here in this passage. Help me count the eyes. Every eye that you see or that you hear, just count it. And I'm going to come back to you and ask you, how many eyes are in this passage that Paul records to us? Verse 15, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. 
I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that what I want to do, what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Whole lot of eyes there, isn't there, friends? Whole lot of eyes. How many eyes were there? 22. That's what they got in first hour, Dave. So, so 22 has it. 22 eyes. Paul, that's very uncharacteristic of Paul if you go through his writings. Very rarely does he refer to himself in that kind of detail. Hey, does this speak maybe a truth? When we're in the middle of a struggle, we're in the, we're in the middle of these battles, do we tend to be very self-focused? Very self-focused, don't we? In the middle of the battle, we tend to look to our self-will to win out. We want to win the battle in our own power, with our own effort, with our own will. Notice what else Paul was experiencing as you read through that. Do you see, like, I see confusion here. You know, verse 15, he says, I don't do, I do not understand what I'm doing here, right? There's confusion as Paul is trying to make sense of why he does the things he does. Do you notice as you look through here, guilt and shame, right? He, he's saying, man, I, I want to do the right thing, but I just, I can't. I, I don't know why I'm acting like this. Verse 17, he's talking about the sin nature working within him. Uh, is, is he talking here about compulsion and how even addiction is creeping in to the point of where now I start doing things, not just because I'm mentally thinking about them, but just I'm compelled to do them? Verse 18, we see notes of self-condemnation. I am a terrible person. I am horrible, right? And just through this whole passage, I mean, as I read it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see the frustration in Paul's life of why can't I get past this? These battles that I'm struggling with, I should be beyond this. I mean, you think about a, a Paul. Paul travels the world starting churches. Don't you think he should be able to have a little more self-control than what he's admitting to here in Romans chapter 7? Can, can you relate to Paul in his state of mind? You see, we see here the very makeup. Paul helps define what the makeup and the, the origin of the battle is. He writes in verse 22, he says, I love God's law with all my heart. So he's making it clear, I love God's law. I love his word. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. You see what Paul's describing here? He's describing his, his sin nature that is within him. Paul understands what some of us know, some of us don't know, and that is this. Every human being, every human being, man, woman, child, we all, when we are born, we have a sin nature within us. What is that sin nature? That is the nature, it's broken, in which it says, I want my way. I want my rule. I want to do life my way. I want to do life under my authority. I want to go down my path. All of us, 
Anyone who has, who's a parent, you watch your kid, you don't have to watch them very long. By the time they, they start walking, by the time they're crawling, there is immediately self-will there. And when their self goes opposite to parent's self, who, who, their goal is to contend, right? Their goal is to want to win so that they're putting themselves on the throne of your family. And we laugh and we smile and we go, oh, isn't that cute? Well, you know what that does? And I agree. I'm not trying to be like, I know something more than you don't. I agree with that. It's funny, isn't it? But that self-will, it grows, doesn't it? It grows to teenage years, college years, adult years. And that same sin nature that we go, oh, isn't that cute? They, we, we don't want them to touch the remote control, and they want that remote control with all their might. Isn't that so cute? Turns into they want things that they can't have, and they steal, and they rob, and they kill in order to get them. And then it's not so cute anymore. It's called like a class two felony, right? That's, that's the sin nature where we're saying we have to have, have life. Now, now, I want to make it very clear here. As a Christ follower... I have the Spirit imparted to me, making a new creation in my life, a creation fashioned after the very image of King Jesus. But even as this new creation is in my life and as a Christ follower, I still have my original sin nature uh, within me which, with which I was born. And to be sure, to make it super clear, that sin nature is not ruling my life, not like it once did anyway. It's not my master, but it is still something that pops up and does battle with my new nature on a regular basis. So how or where do I find victory when these two natures that are within me are constantly clashing and doing war? Where do we find? Well, let's turn to the scriptures. What does Paul say in verse 24? He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is, that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it interesting uh, that this is talking here about the need to commit myself to Christ? What is, what is the answer to, to winning the battles within us? Deeper commitment to Jesus Christ. Further commitment to Christ in our lives. Notice it's talking about, this passage is talking about Christ owning you. Not just the idea of us dabbling with the faith. You know, the idea of dabbling with the faith. Uh, Parviz could probably tell, tell us and speak to us, Kaylee, I would bet, that worldwide, when people come to Christ, they understand they're committing their life. But in America, when we talk about coming to faith, we are like, oh yeah, I can, I can give this portion of my life to God. I can, I'll, sh I'll occasionally show up when it's convenient, when, when on a Sunday, when, when, I, you know, when, when everything's working just right and I'm feeling good and you know, nothing else better. I'll show up with God's people and, and you know, rub, rub elbows with some of other God's people. I'll, I, I'll nominally commit myself to the things of God. I'll pray a prayer. I'll get baptized. I'll go to church periodically. I'll commit a little bit, I'll just dabble. I'll dabble, put my toe in the, the pool of the family of God, and, and things will be okay. What Paul is talking about is not this, but it's, it's Christ owning you. It's Christ owning your life. A long time ago, I learned people don't remember sermons. They remember sentences, okay? So here's a sentence for you to just put in your head. 
God does not want to be the resident, a resident of your life. He wants to be the president of your life. Okay? Now, I can't brag on that because I stole that from someone else. I didn't create that myself. God doesn't want to be just a resident, just a part of your life. He wants to be the whole. He wants to be the total sum. God wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to be the one in control. He wants to be your center in which you navigate. You create true north from him. You operate. You make decisions because of what his will for your life is. You don't just try to put God in piecemeal where it's convenient. And we're not going to win battles, the battles within us, if we operate with the idea that God is just there on the side and he's just there to be a cosmic cheerleader. We're not going to even have an attempt to win those battles until we get to a point where we understand that he is Lord and he is Savior. He is the cosmic Lord of our lives and he has total control and total authority. And so therefore, when I encounter something in his word that tells me to stop doing something, I stop it. We can't sit back and go, well, I disagree with that. You know, I live in a society that says that what I'm thinking here, what this says, what the scripture says is wrong. My society says it's right, so I'm going to choose my society. No, no. We choose to live under the authority and the guidance of Almighty God. And we choose to have him as the center of our lives. Verse 24, this is very interesting. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And they really did a nice job cleaning this up. In verse 24, Paul says, What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now that communicates. I mean, we understand what he's trying to communicate here. But you know, some of your translations... Use a word verbiage, uh, verbiage that's just really unclear. You know, go, what are they trying to communicate? Some of you, uh, it's translated as this body of death. You might have that in your translation. Do you know that those words, body of death, is actually a better translation of the original Greek than what my translation is? My translation cleans it up, keeps it kind of respectable. Now, I'm just going to warn you up front. I'm going to go about three minutes where I'm going to get pretty dark and I'm going to get pretty gross. I apologize on Mother's Day, getting gross and dark. I know you came here for a nice Mother's Day sermon, not to hear disgusting things. I apologize, but I have no other choice here. So body of death, that is a term that sounds very foreign to us. It's not foreign to the original readers because it was actually, it was actually a judicial term. It was a legal term. Body of death was describing a form of capital punishment. So if someone committed murder, especially a real heinous kind of murder, you know, fratricide, killing your brother, killing a sister, killing your mother or father for, to get their inheritance, if someone committed something like that, they would not crucify the individual. They would, the judge would impose the death, of, of death by body of death. You say, what is body of death? Well, again, here's where I get gross. What they would do is they would take the corpse, the corpse that you killed, and they would attach it to you. Tie hand to hand, wrist to wrist. Oftentimes, there was even a whole science of how to better do this. Oftentimes, they put back to back. And so there was a lot of things going on here. Every time you got up and you smelled the stink, you were reminded of your crime. Every time you felt the burden of carrying a dead body, wherever you were walking, <laughs> you, you felt the weight of your sin on you. And also, as the decay process happened, and that disgusting process began, you know what would more than likely happen to the living person? That decay of the dead flesh 
would come into your living flesh and infections and disease would occur and you would literally rot to death. Terrible, terrible, gross. I apologize even talking about it with you good people, right, on this beautiful day. But that was, a, that was called the body of death. And Paul, don't miss this here, Paul is saying when sin is attached to him, the same decay, the same rot, the same filth, the same death that was certain to occur because of that is what's going on spiritually because of sin in our lives. And he's saying, look, I have this body of death attached to me. It's called my personal sin. Everyone understood exactly what Paul was saying. Everyone was like, are you kidding me? That's, that's what that is? That's what that's like? They understood it in Paul's day. And Paul says, yes, and he says, he says, who, what's my solution? Who will cut, who will cut this body of death from me? Who will free me from this terrible weight? Notice Paul said, who, not what, not what. You see, we look for a what, don't we? We look for a program to help us think differently. We look for a pill to numb us. We look for a church that will fix us. But what we need to do is quit looking for those things and we look for the living Christ. The living Christ is the one who will fix us in, in chapter 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you. Uh, in the original Greek, has cut you, has cut you from from the power of sin that leads to death. God cuts the body of death from you. You are free from the consequences of sin. God has given you the equipment to live a victorious life. It takes the spirit empowering you. You cannot do it on your own. Your willpower will never work. You, you can have all the best intentions and make all the right promises to yourself and to your family and to your church, but you know, you know, that you will break them over and over. You cannot be like Christ. You have to let Christ live in you and through you. Oh, I want to make it clear. Resolutions are good. I'm not anti-resolution, but they will only get you so far. And at that point, you have to turn it over to Jesus and allow the Spirit to work within you. The alcoholic who says, I'll never take a drink again. The violent person who says, I will never lose my temper ever again. The per person controlled by pornography who says, I'm never going to look at another terrible image again. They are all going to fail, every one of them. The only way to win this battle against the old nature, your flesh, is to let the Holy Spirit do it on your behalf. You see, here's the reality, friends. Every one of us, every one of us, we have skeletons. And if there's a person standing here saying, not me, Tony, I don't have a skeleton, guess what? They have four or five skeletons, okay? Because I know human nature. What else I also know about skeletons? Skeletons tend not to stay in the closet, do they? They come out, and they usually come out at the most inopportune time. They usually come out at the most embarrassing of times. Oh, we try to be good. We try to do the right thing, but we always end up picking the wrong things to do. Once we are in God's family, we're given a new nature. But the two natures that we now have in our bodies, they are at war, and we feel the frustration. 
We feel the lack of power, the lack of self-will. We need to let go of those things and allow Jesus to fight for us. Allow him to live through us. Let his spirit empower us. Let us pray right now. And I would say this in this room or if you're watching streaming now or down the road, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, I'm going to invite you and ask you to, to call upon him right now so that you would know the resources that you have in him. And perhaps the prayer is just something as simple as this, that you just pray, Jesus, I invite you into my life right now. Live in me. I want to learn to trust you. I want to learn to love you. I want to allow you to live through me. Forgive me of my sin, King Jesus. In your powerful name, amen. That's, that's as simple as that to invite Jesus to come into your life. And for many of us, we just need to be praying, <laughs> recognizing the confusion and the frustration in our lives as we're fighting these wars. And for you, maybe you pray a prayer something like this. Father, you know my confusion, you know my frustration, you know my guilt, and you know my shame. You know my compulsions, you know my habits, you know my addictions, you know my broken promises. Today I see that I have two natures inside of me. I ask you to help me to learn to live through your spirit so that that nature will grow and my sin nature will diminish Deepen my understanding of what Jesus has done for me. Show me how to surrender my self-will and allow the Spirit to live through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.